This is episode 47 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have a really unique episode. Uh, we have Pam Holland here from Marshall University. She is an assistant professor and currently serves as director of clinical education and department in the Department of Communication Disorders in the College of Health Professions. She also has a master's degree from Marshall University. She coordinates graduate clinical placements within the community and facilitates clinical educational opportunities for speech-language pathologists in the tri-state area. She teaches courses which encompass service learning pedagogical strategies. Did I say that right? I know what that word is, but I can't say it right. Um, so anyways, Pam came up with the coolest idea. I'm so glad she emailed me a few months back. And we were able to get this squeeze this episode in before the end of Dysphagia Awareness Month. But we are going to be talking to Pam and six of her students, a few grad students and a few undergrad students, actually. And she had a great idea because they do an advocacy project where they reach out to a colleague in a different profession. So we are going to hear from her students about their experiences. And they interviewed uh, respiratory therapists, dietitians. Uh, those are just the only two that I can think of right off the top of my head, but um, ask some really great questions, and I just love this project, and I love that they all agreed to come on and share this with us. So hopefully you guys learned something about this. Hopefully those of you that are out there teaching, maybe you can implement this, um, what is this, assignment <laughs> into your uh, classes, but um, hopefully you guys really enjoy this episode and I will, I'm, I'm going to split this up into two episodes because it's a lot. These students had a lot to say. I wasn't sure how they would be if they, you know, be into talking a little bit or a lot and they, they nailed it, man. So we're going to have two parts. So this is part one today. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Um, I hope everybody. I hope everybody had a good month of June, and everybody did something this month as far as dysphagia or even aphasia awareness month. I honestly could not be prouder of everybody that I work with, and um, I know in. Uh, my fees business course, a lot of people have been doing some great education about dysphagia in their facilities. I know in our MedSLP newbies group on Facebook, uh, we've ran a little contest and just so proud of the in-services that our SLPs are doing and educating other professionals on what we do and creating some patient handouts for their patients. So I'm, I'm just so proud of everybody and have a few promotions still going on this month. Um, First, firstly, I was going to say firstly, <laughs> first, if you screenshot listening to this episode and tag me and hashtag Swallow Your Pride Podcast on Instagram, you'll be entered to win a free year to the Medical SLP Solution. And speaking of that, we are closing down enrollment to the Med SLP Solution this Friday night. So if you're interested in getting into that, please join before then. That's medslpsolution.com. And I, today I was sharing in the group a few of the, 
but not a few. I, I asked for some success stories last week and I got about 50 different people that responded with just some awesome strides they've made with their patients in the last month. And, you know, what I really like to emphasize the entire premise of the MedSLP solution is we advocate the ACE. Okay. I know we have ACE awards that ASHA gives us for listening to CEUs, but I we're rolling out this new theory next week. And basically I want everyone to think of treating their patients using the ACE model. So advocacy, compassion, and evidence, right? I think all three of those are equally important in what we do every day. And I think when we can use all three of those parts when treating our patients, that's what helps us to get the best outcomes for them. And I think our entire goal, if you ask anybody, what what do they want out of this career, out of this profession? And I think everybody wants to help people and career fulfillment. That's what I keep hearing. And, you know, I, I was doing a Facebook Live last night, and as much as we can blame our administrators or we can blame our directors, say that there's so much red tape, I think there's really some some power in owning that we're a little bit at fault here. And I think we can try to meet them a little more halfway. So um, in the medical SLP solution, really just trying to encourage everybody to check out the resources that we have made. All of the resources are blind peer reviewed by university professors so that we know that they are accurate and up to date and using those resources and advocating for your profession and advocating for your patients. So we have coming up, I'm really proud of this, we have some actual done for you in services. So we give you the PowerPoint that has all the research on it. All you have to do is present it. Uh, we also give you handouts and brochures. So everything is done for you. So all you've got to do is just give it. Um, so I think, you know, when we're able to advocate for ourselves and our patients and we're able to get our patients the outcomes that they want, that's when we feel fulfilled. And I know that's why I'm in this gig. <laughs> I think that's why all of you listen to me every week, ramble on and on like this, but we all want to do what's best for our patients, which in turn is going to be what's best for us and helping us feel fulfilled in our career. So, um, this wasn't what I planned on rambling about all day today, but I guess I just did for the last four minutes. But, um, if you're interested, head over to MedSLPSolution.com, and I, I shared about 10 different stories of, of other members in our group that have had successes with their patients, and it just it makes me emotional thinking of how much good we're doing as, as a group and how we really are better together when we all put our heads together. So uh, like I said, that we are closing down enrollment Friday night for the Medical SLP Solution, so hop in before then if you're interested. And also just another reminder that the MedBridge promo ends on Saturday, June 30th. So if you are interested in getting that free upgrade to the premium plan, use promo code SYP by Saturday. And I do get um, a small commission off every sale of that to help keep this SYP podcast going. So I think those are my two big announcements for this week. I'm so excited for this episode with Pam, you guys. She just, she crushed it with this idea. And I hope you guys all really Learn from it and love it too. Hello, everybody. Hello. I'm so excited to do this episode. We have a fantastic episode today that I think all of our listeners are going to love too. And I have to give 100% of the credit to Pam Holland, who we'll introduce you to in a minute for coming up with this great idea. And I love that we're getting grad students involved with this. And we're kind of doing this in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, although we're coming to the end of Dysphagia Awareness Month. But 
really just putting the word out there about working together and that we're better together and how to have really good interprofessional communication with our peers. So um, Pam, tell the people who you are. My name is Pam Holland and I'm a speech language pathologist by trade, of course. I teach at Marshall University in a town in West Virginia, Huntington, West Virginia. And I'm from this town. I graduated with my undergraduate and my master's from Marshall. So I bleed green. And I'm also the director of clinical education here. So I'm responsible for assigning graduate students there on campus and externships. I recently started my board certification process. I applied in March and thank you, Teresa, for helping me study for that. I am responsible for teaching the graduate dysphagia course. And one of the things that I'm most proud about is founding the Marshall University Feeding and Swallowing Clinic. And so now we have our graduate students who are in a position to learn about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, which I think is a little different than adult dysphagia, yes. as we know. Slightly, <laughs> slightly different. Slightly different, yeah. absolutely. And so really what I wanted to talk about today is, of course, dysphagia, but slightly different spin, and that would be the interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. Marshall University has a very, very strong interprofessional education program, and I think it's a relatively new term, at least for people from my generation, which would, you know, I'm in my late 40s. And so those of us who are in that generation, we came from a graduate program probably that talked about co-treating and, you know, if you need another professional to refer to, then refer them out and get that person seen. And that isn't the way we do business anymore. The World Health Organization has an amazing framework for interprofessional education and practice. And our governing bodies, ASHA, the CAA, the CFCC, is really focusing on training our students about interprofessional education and having students and professionals understand the difference between interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. So my idea here today is I have an amazing group of graduate students at Marshall, and it's National Dysphagia Month, and so I wanted to invite some of my students to do an advocacy project as it relates to working with other professionals while we're also providing dysphagia care for our patients, because we can't do it alone. And in talking to you, Teresa, I know that I'm preaching to the choir because yes. we hear that all the time in your podcast. And in my initial email, I reached out to you because this is the first year that I'm in a position to offer your podcast as an assignment for my yes. students. And they're loving it. Good. And, and so the fact that they can be a part of it and share, I truly believe, their expertise because they do have so much to bring to the plate. I think that often they don't feel as if they have the knowledge or the experience, but anybody working with graduate students or supervising CFs know that's different. Yeah. Um, and I think we do need to learn from each other, not just other disciplines, but, you know, intergenerational learning. Yeah, so. absolutely. I know when, when we first spoke on the phone, you know, that's something that I hear all the time out there is colleagues saying, I love when I get grad students because they teach me the latest and greatest, you know, and not to say that we shouldn't keep up to date on the research, but sometimes we may not have, you know, we're in our clinical world, clinical brain all day, every day. Sometimes we haven't heard about the, you know, latest dysphagia journal or something like that. So it's great to have these grad students really educate us. So I love learning from the grad students. So I want everybody else to also. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so. And we're going to encourage definitely that today. But also, I'm going to turn it over to the graduate students because that's what it's all about today. Yeah. But 
for your listeners, I would like to spend a little time defining those two terms, interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. And really, when we think about interprofessional education, the difference between what I did as a student and what our students now are doing is that students are coming together, two or more professionals, and they are learning about each other from each other and with each other to enable effective collaboration and to improve health health outcomes. And so when we get every spring, when we get our interprofessional education program going, we have eight different disciplines from the College of Health Professions, School of Medicine, School of Pharmacy. And so we also have nurses and dietitians and social workers and psychologists speech pathologists, residents, pharmacists, physical therapists, and all of the students come together, learn about each other's role, their scope of practice. And then we have a little case that they chat about and kind of work through acute care into discharge. And so in today's education environment and most curriculums in healthcare, that's how we're learning. Students are learning about other professionals. That's and so how fantastic. Yeah, and how we can care for our patients better because of other disciplines. Absolutely. And so that's interprofessional education. And so I think that's something different than what anybody, you know, the last 10 years have been in school has had. Interprofessional practice is the end result of being educated in that interprofessional world. And so interprofessional practice is when what you do and we do every day is when multiple health workers come together from different professional backgrounds, provide comprehensive patient care with families, caregivers, communities, so that the patient outcomes are improved. And so what I can't do for my patient, I know someone else can help me do. And I think one of the things that this changes is a divide. It goes back, and I think in a previous podcast, you've mentioned, you know, who does the modified? Is it the occupational therapist? Is it the speech therapist? And the NICU, there's also a fight there in who's doing it. And I think that the interprofessional practice, it shouldn't be about who's doing what, but how can we help each other to serve the patient better? And sometimes it's the speech pathologist with training and other times it's the occupational therapist or the nurse. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about today. I know a lot of other universities are working on interprofessional practice and teaching their students. Uh, Universities got a real strong program with John McCarthy, Laura Karcher at Indiana University, and ASHA has a big push. I mean, they're working on a collaborative to help individuals who did graduate, you know, some time ago, and maybe don't have that same perspective of not just telling someone what we can do, but asking others for insight and opinions. And so I love it. Nonetheless, a little bit of background between uh, or for IPE and IPP. So what your listeners may need to know is that the advocacy project that I put together for our students was to target some of the professionals that do work with our patients with dysphagia. And so what I've asked them to do is to do some research, complete some research on maybe scope of practice, the role in the dysphagia population. And then if they were lucky enough, contact one of those providers and ask them, what do they want to know about the role of an SLP in working with a patient with dysphagia? What do they want to know from us? But then what do they want us to know about their profession? Which I really think is the key. Yeah. Because the perspective of, and you're going to find when you hear from them, the perspective of, you know, a nurse versus a dietitian versus a respiratory therapist, they all are coming at our patient population a little bit differently. And that respect is so very important. Yeah, I think, you know, and that's one thing that I try to impress upon everybody is we get so mad when, 
you know, the nurses just automatically put someone on thickened liquids or something like that, but they don't know, you know, we haven't taken the time out to educate them that, hey, maybe for this specific patient, that may not be the best. And we need a speech pathologist to do the evaluation to decide that. But, you know, instead of just getting so angry and so mad, we've got to just stop and communicate with them. <laughs> and it seems to be such a, it sounds so simple, but in the grand scheme of things, it's really difficult. So absolutely, absolutely. Communication, I think, is you're going to see a central theme because every one of our students, and you'll see that in the show notes, is our takeaway points, our takeaway points from learning about other disciplines and how we can implement that. And, and quite often is it's be open to learning new information and communicate. And I always think about just being present. You can't learn from, with, or about someone unless you're present with them. You have to be in their presence be present when they're talking to you about what perspectives they have. And, you know, I think takeaway points from the different professionals are going to be very valuable. So awesome. unless you have any other questions for me, I'd like to introduce my students. Please do. Okay. Today we have five first year graduate students that are enrolled in my dysphagia course and two second year graduate students, and they will be graduating in August. Between the group, we have students who provided services at our university clinic, pediatric outpatient, acute care, NICU, schools, home health, and rehabilitation. So when I think about graduate students, and I think graduate students don't think they're very experienced, I think we have a really great panel of experienced SLPs with a perspective that is going to be really important. Do you know where I had all my graduate school education in? Where? One setting. The schools. Really? Yes. So you guys are so stinking lucky. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. Yes. And look what you're doing. And now. look at me now. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I'm one of those that never had a dysphagia course in grad school. So, you know. Yeah, we had a course. We just I didn't get placed in any of those settings. I just it was really slim pickings, and I got plucked in the schools. So. Right. That was my okay. luck of the draw. Yeah. Well, it's a great setting, no doubt. Yeah. And yeah. we do have one of our disciplines is in the education and, and the teacher, the preschool teacher. And because I do think that feeding and swallowing happens there. And so that's Absolutely. a new perspective as well. But nonetheless, all of the panelists here today have had an experienced interprofessional education here at Marshall. And so I think they are probably experts in that field, maybe a lot more than your listeners. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start out with Natalie Saber, and she's a first-year graduate student, and she's going to talk to us about the role of the psychologist, social work, and pharmacist. Now, I know that seems like a lot, but when we started doing some research on psychologists, we found lots of articles that also collaborated social work with that. And then all of a sudden, we learned about the medications that people who are serving some of our patients, they're on a lot of medications. Yeah. And so we just kind of, she's going to talk to you about how all three of these roles play a, uh, a part in our effective patient outcomes. All right. So, and then as we move forward, we're going to move on and I'll just introduce the next student as once Ad- Natalie's done. Sounds good. Natalie, take it away. All right. So I'll be talking a little bit about considerations for the psychologist, social worker, and pharmacist in dysphagia care. So as we know, dysphagia is a complex disorder that's considered a symptom of an underlying disease. So these patients often present with additional comorbid health conditions that require collaboration between multiple medical and therapeutic specialties. So understanding the need for interprofessional collaboration as part of a dysphagia care team is vital not just for the SLP, but for all professionals working with patients who have dysphagia, as well as their families. 
But aside from the comorbid uh, medical complications associated with swallowing disorders, dysphagia can also present with life-altering psychosocial challenges that negatively impact an individual's quality of life and their ability to participate in things. So collectively, ASHA research supports that adults with dysphagia often experience less enjoyment of eating and drinking, embarrassment or isolation in social situations involving eating, and they often face life-altering adjustments that impact both the patient and the caregiver. So I have a few relevant studies that kind of just elaborate on the psychosocial implications of dysphagia. One in particular is a 2002 study on the social and psychological burden of dysphagia and its impact on diagnosis and treatment. The researchers revealed that dysphagia can hinder social opportunities and the pleasurable experience of mealtimes, can negatively impact the relationship between the patient and the caregiver, and it can further undermine the patient's health and sense of confidence. This study also revealed that dysphagia can reduce self-esteem, security, work capacity, exercise, and leisure activities. And I have some upsetting but really relevant statistics to consider from the study. The study revealed that over 50% of patients reported that they were eating less because of their dysphagia. 84% of patients said that they believed mealtime should be an enjoyable experience, yet only 45% actually found it to be enjoyable. 41% reported anxiety or panic during mealtimes. Over 36% of patients reported that they avoided eating with others because of their dysphagia. The majority of patients reported that they did not believe their dysphagia was treatable. And the majority of patients also reported that they experienced an increased sense of social isolation and a loss of self-esteem that they attributed to their swallowing difficulties. That's just, that's eye-opening, right, Natalie? Yes, uh, I think that really speaks volumes to the psychosocial burden that follows dysphagia or a loss of your swallowing abilities. So I have another article <laughs> just to elaborate a little bit more on it. This one is on a study that was done on understanding mealtime changes for adults with cerebral palsy and the implications for support services. Uh, this one was done in 2009, and the researchers discussed how the lifestyle changes caused by dysphagia in adults with CP led to reduced social interaction during mealtime, loss of independence, emotional responses to change that involved frustration and embarrassment, communication barriers, difficulties in their relationships with families and caregivers, and concerns regarding reactions of the general public. So I think this leads us to asking, like, what is the role of psychologists in dysphagia care? So the psychologist can evaluate and treat both dysphagia patients and their families in an effort to help them adjust to their swallowing disability, help them cope with psychological, social, emotional, emotional, and behavioral ramifications of their swallowing disability, and help them manage associated stress. I just was going to say, I think this is so eye-opening because, you know, I know some experienced clinicians just, we just get these one-track minds and we'll just go in, see a patient, say they have a swallowing impairment and just quickly change their diet or change their liquids. And there is so much more to that than just doing that, you know, and I think these articles speak Absolutely. volumes as to why we need to stop and really assess what we're doing, educate the patient on these are the options. Yeah, I think those are fantastic. Right. And eating mealtime is yeah. so important, I think, culturally and just socially. You know, I can only imagine I come from a family of cooks and a family of eaters. Yeah. So yeah, all of our lives would be really impacted if even one of us lost yeah. that ability. Um, so in terms of working in the pediatric dysphagia population, the psychologist can also be an important member of the dysphagia team when treating children with behavioral feeding disorders that coexist with dysphagia, as their expertise in cognitive behavioral therapy and behavioral management techniques are often needed. So they definitely have a relevant role on the dysphagia care team. And it also leads us to ask, what's the role of the social worker in dysphagia care? 
The social worker can assist in counseling the patient and their families in adjusting to their disability. They can help them identify and access the least restrictive residential and treatment environments, and they can help them with third-party payment issues. But the social worker can be especially valuable on the dysphagia care team when working with SLPs in end-of-life and hospice care settings. So let me ask you where this term dysphagia care team came from. Well, there's actually an ASHA article on the dysphagia teams, and it talks a little bit about all the different members that we need to have on a dysphagia care team and what their roles can be. So it's just, it's a really good reference, and I think we've included it. Did you guys include that? Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I just think of some of these facilities, and if only we had a dysphagia care team. Oh, yes. It's in the practice portal on ASHA. Okay. Thanks. And we've included it in in there. It's a really good reference. Thanks, Um, you guys. It has like a running list. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And let's see here. Well, there's another really interesting article that we found. This really pulls the pharmacist in to this relationship between SLPs and mental health professionals and dysphagia care. This article was done in 2010, and it was on the negative impacts of medication on swallowing. And the researchers found that certain antidepressants can facilitate swallowing difficulties in post-stroke dysphagia patients by slowing swallowing coordination and increasing dysphagia severity. They also discussed that certain psychiatric conditions, uh, specifically schizophrenia, uh, has a higher incident of death by choking. The researchers explained that this incident of choking is higher in this population, not only because certain antipsychotics used to treat them can cause deterioration of the swallow, but also because this population presents with predispositions to physiological swallowing disorders, reflux issues, and behavior that increases the risk for choking. So in another interesting, um, this article referenced a case study from 2003 that discussed a case of dysphagia that was induced by risperidone in an Alzheimer's patient. The patient was initially prescribed the risperidone to treat irritability and aggressive behavior and following the medication uh, developed oral and pharyngeal dysphagia. And when he was taken off the medication, his swallowing function was reversed to normal swallowing. Yeah, and we've seen this a lot, and I'm so glad you're talking on this because I think it's something that a lot of SLPs don't even know or don't get much education about is is the drugs and dysphagia combination. Some can cause it, some, yeah. So thank you for talking on that. Yeah, and so pretty much just a few takeaway points to just sum it up. Yeah, it's very important for us to understand that medications used to treat mood and behavior and psychiatric conditions may impact swallowing function. This is important for mental health professionals as well as SLPs, pharmacists, and other healthcare providers because it can allow for an increased monitoring of swallow function in mental health populations that are potentially at risk. Our second takeaway point is that psychosocial aspects of dysphagia must not be underestimated. As clinicians and students of dysphagia therapy, awareness of the severe psychosocial barriers that dysphagia patients face in coping with their disability drastically highlights the need for SLPs to collaborate with and consult mental health professionals, such as psychologists and social workers in dysphagia care. And our last point, and probably the most important, is to listen to the patient. So aside from the research regarding how dysphagia impacts various psychosocial facets in life, Nothing quite advocates on behalf of the need for a collaborative dysphagia team and a professional partnership with mental health professionals, like the personal account of dysphagia patients passionately in search of it. So this was really moving. Uh, We found a recent post on the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders Facebook support group where a patient had explained that it took them 10 years to find a therapist that had the experience and training to assist them in coping with the social and emotional implications of their lost swallowing abilities. I think that we should look at that as a call for action. Absolutely, Natalie. All right. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you. Oh my gosh. It's so nice to meet you. (laughs) All 
All right. Okay. Our second graduate student is Lexi Roll Miller, and she's a second year graduate student and getting ready to graduate in August. And if you're looking for someone to hire, she's your girl. For me? <laughs> for me? Uh, yeah. Oh gosh, I need every I need all the help I can get. She Come would, to me, she Lexi. Would, she would be, oh, I don't even know what to say, but nonetheless, she she's a keeper. Well, let um, me meet her. Okay, she's going to talk about the respiratory therapist on the team. So okay. take it away, Meg. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Lexi. Hi. So I'm going to talk about considerations for the respiratory therapist and how the two of us can work together. And okay. I'll basically just start with talking kind of about the knowledge base of both of us. So we both come, um, Nancy Swigert had an article in the ASHA Leader about, and she really worded it, we both have special knowledge of the upper air digestive tract, and the respiratory therapist provides that deeper insight into the effects of cardiopulmonary problems. And then we kind of come in and we bring a more in-depth insight into the neurological perspective and swallowing physiology. So then we kind of both come together looking at the same area from different angles. And we're looking at the coordination of breathing and swallowing as well as breathing and speaking. So we always have to consider that kind of into it as well. And breathing obviously comes first. And as professionals who work in swallowing, I think a lot of times that we kind of walk in and we think, oh, swallowing is our big thing. That's what's first and foremost. But physicians and respiratory therapists and nurses, their first priority is going to be breathing. So we kind of have to consider that and then look into swallowing after that as well. So some specific populations that we work with, obviously a big one is trachs and vents. And it's really important when talking to a respiratory therapist, they emphasize the importance of collaborating during decannulation. And something really big that they pointed out that I had never really thought of it from this perspective was that just as kind of when we're doing trials of food and liquid with someone or swallowing trials, we kind of are reassurance. That's our profession. That's the knowledge base that we have. And we can act as that reassurance to the patient. Well, the respiratory therapist, during those decannulation and speaking valve trials, they kind of act as reassurance from the respiration and breathing side. So it's not just, we don't want them there just for the safety of decannulation, but also kind of for that patient quality of life and just kind of to be there to provide that reassurance and that support for the patient. And then also kind of just a little plug, because we know that cognition is so important for swallowing as well, we can also provide that really good insight into the cognitive and alert status of a patient if we are considering decannulation and things like that, and explaining the decannulation process to the patient in a way that they can understand, because we do come from that communication aspect in addition to the swallowing aspect. Yeah, I I think that's huge. I can't even count the amount of times I've gone in to see a patient and they just have like the little speaking valve sitting on their nightstand and they have no idea why they have it or what its use is or anything like that, you know. And I assume it's just because respiratory therapists told them that they had to use it, but they don't understand why. So I think that's where we have a huge role too. Yeah, and just in assessing in those different ways, not just swallowing, but yeah their communication, cognition, how we can get across to them so that they will use it and it's more effective in their care. So another big thing that the respiratory therapist wanted us to kind of understand was when a patient is ready to be decannulated. So they kind of wanted us to understand all the different steps it takes. You know, they have to be off the ventilator. They have to be able to manage secretions. They need to have a cap trach, you know, for 24 hours with the smaller tube. And so some questions that we can ask the respiratory therapist in these situations are, can they cough? How strong is their cough? How frequently are they requiring suctioning? 
And then the respiratory therapist can perform certain tests and kind of come back to us and let us know. And these tests are also helpful before we're doing a clinical swallowing evaluation at bedside as well. So that's kind of a big thing. Decannulation and trachs are obviously a huge thing that we would work with respiratory therapists with. And then the two of us, we can also, there is a great article in Dysphagia Cafe by Kobach, and he talked about how we can work together to advocate for smaller tubes, both at the time of the tracheotomy and early in the process, because some hospitals are still waiting two weeks before they're even considering downsizing a trach. And that's kind of putting all of our patients into one mold, which kind of crazy. <laughs> so, because, you know, we could have a 24 year old athlete versus a 65 year old with tons of health problems. So downsizing might be a little bit different for both of those patients. So it's important to consider that and kind of collaborate on that. And we can advocate together because two is kind of always better than one as far as going after those things and advocating for our patients. You got it, sister. Yes. <laughs> and then also just kind of monitoring those repeat offenders of aspiration pneumonia was something that one of the respiratory therapists I talked to, because a lot of times they don't know that. We know that they've had aspiration pneumonia four times, but that respiration therapist might just see, you know, this patient has pneumonia, I'm going to treat it as such. And so we can really educate on that and what causes aspiration pneumonia and what we can do about it. And the respiratory therapist is going to be around those patients probably a lot more than we are too. So they can kind of keep an eye out, monitor, and they can try to catch it a little bit earlier on. So we can go in and kind of see what's going on, do that instrumental and try to figure out, are they aspirating as that is what is causing their pneumonia. And then we can also communicate on those diet recommendations. So if we are making kind of a riskier diet recommendation with someone, say, you know, that 24 year old athlete or something that we think will be okay, we can kind of let them know, you know, they might have had aspiration pneumonia, but we gave them, you know, thin liquids and regulars, and we're just doing some exercises with them, but kind of have them watch and educating them on the signs and symptoms of aspiration pneumonia. So how can we help each other? So Baker and Bridges has an article from 2014 about things that the respiratory therapist can educate us on which I think is really important. So ventilators, just the settings and alarms, because like, for example, there's assist control mode or pressure support mode. And knowing which setting that ventilator's on is gonna make a huge difference because in pressure support, the patient is controlling the timing of their own breathing. So that's used during the weaning process. So that's maybe a time when we would get in there a little bit more. And assist control is when the ventilator is controlling the breathing. So just talking to a respiratory therapist and learning that really opened my eyes because that's going to make a huge difference in how you're making a treatment plan and setting up that patient's plan of care. And they also have extensive knowledge about trach tubes, kind of from a different perspective than we do. Like I said, kind of they're coming from a different angle. We also want to consult with a respiratory therapist before meals. This is also from Nancy Swigert's article. Suctioning before meals prevents coughing is what um, a couple articles that she had pulled together had found. And then also not just kind of writing off a patient that's on a ventilator, you know, we can ask the respiratory therapist, is this patient safe enough to be off the ventilator long enough to eat or even participate in an evaluation? So that's something that we can get in there earlier if we just communicate that with them and they think that we can do a trial. And they can provide insight into respiratory disorders that could really complicate the eating and swallowing with a trach. And then the respiratory therapist, like I said, is with the patient more often, so they can help monitor for cuff deflation during meals, use of the speaking valve when eating, which has been shown to lead to improved subglottic pressure, decreased aspiration, protective expiration with the coughing, and lots of other things. 
And then as SLPs, we can train on the AC communication part, speaking valves, the benefits of cuff deflation, education about aspiration and cuff deflation, and really educate on how cuff deflation can actually assist swallowing physiology and that a patient can have a deflated cuff and have an effective respiratory status as well. Say that, say that again, Lexi. I got to make sure everyone hears that loud and clear. A patient can be off the cuff and have an effective respiratory status as well. Okay. All right. (laughs) Yes. So the biggest thing that when talking to the respiratory therapists I know said that they wanted is they want education on what qualifies someone for a swallow study, because they're going to see those patients kind of right off the bat when they come into ICU, probably earlier than us. So they can help make those referrals. So they know, you know, if this patient's coughing, well, we need to educate them on the types of cough to look for and when they're coughing and things like that so that they can come back to us and make those recommendations. And also a big thing was educating on post-extubation dysphagia. So they're working a lot with those patients too. And we can kind of come in from our perspective. You know, there was a great article that showed, I cannot pronounce the name, Sigh at all 2016, talking about how age matters a lot in post-extubation dysphagia and when to evaluate and when to refer. And, you know, the 24-hour wait was kind of a thing for a long time, and there's not really a whole lot of evidence on that. So, and just... There's no ahead. real evidence. Let's clarify that. Yes, there's okay. no real evidence on Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> um, and there's a really good Dysphagia Cafe article. I love Dysphagia Cafe, too, about... Just a swallowing nerd over here. Post-extubation dysphagia too. So those were the two big things. So basically my big takeaways are two is better than one for advocating. Respiration comes from the ventilator. So we really need to ask the respiratory therapist to educate us on that piece of equipment and the inner workings between respiration and swallowing. And then talking about the speaking valve as well and how that can be okay for respiration and also improve swallowing physiology. Awesome. I'm so glad you touched on that the respiratory wants to know more about who is appropriate for a study and who is not. Some of the buildings that I have the best relationships with are because the RT is advocating for the swallow study. You know, and and like you said, sometimes they're the first line of defense of saying, hey, I think this patient's ready. Let's get speech in there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they may just be sitting there for weeks and weeks. Someone's wondering when they're going to start eating again. So if you're working in a facility with a respiratory therapist, I think they are, you know, should be your absolute go-to to establish a good solid relationship with them. Yeah, I completely agree. They're definitely very valuable to the dysphagia care team. Yeah. Awesome. Where did you, what um, setting, were you in a hospital, Lexi? Yeah, I'm currently in an outpatient, inpatient, and then we do some home health. I've also been in an inpatient rehab hospital. So I've kind of got, and I'll Man, be Man, you just got the whole jam then. Yes. Yes. That's I've great. Had great experiences. Thanks to Mrs. Holland. So good. That's <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Lexi. That was wonderful. Yeah, thank you. And before we switch gears here, I think one of the reasons that I have such good relationships with respiratory therapists is because they are usually completely enamored with fees. So uh, check out our sponsor this month, EndoHD. They have a true high-definition fees imaging system with HD image display and capture, crisp color image, unsurpassed digital clarity, HD image with better resolution than legacy systems, and views details of patient anatomy with double the resolution of standard definition video. EndoHD is a compact fee system with a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital. So contact ndohd.com forward slash contact. That's ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. 
Okay, our next speaker and expert is Emily Woolwine, and I say that she's an expert because I was fortunate enough to place her in a NICU population. We don't have a whole lot of settings in this area for that, and she expressed interest as an undergraduate and did some independent studies with me, and so I coerced a fellow friend who works in the NICU to take her, and I'm a wannabe NICU therapist, and so Emily's already been there, and I have not, so that's why I call her an expert. Um, And you didn't coerce her. She willingly said, come to me. I'd love to take a student. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And so nonetheless, she's not going to talk about the NICU population, but she is going to talk about the role of the dietitian on the dysphagia care team. Okay. Okay. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Emily. Um, so I actually did have a little bit of experience because whenever I was with the NICU population, I also was with a therapist who worked in the acute setting of the adult population. So we worked a lot and had regular interprofessional meetings that included a dietitian on the team. So she was really important whenever we were having those meetings and talking about different diets that patients were on. And so I think the role of the dietitian is super duper important in our care because they are the people who have the most information about how the nutritional limitations of a person with a feeding and swallowing disorder is really going to impact their health. And so we think about more of the aspect of safe swallowing and getting them to eat something sometimes. And really, there's a lot more to it than that because we want to make sure that they're staying hydrated and they're getting the nutrients they need. So dietitians typically perform a nutritional assessment and then create a treatment plan based on that assessment that focuses on making sure the patient gets the right nutrition for their body to thrive and work and stay hydrated. And so they also play a big role in identifying how we can manage their nutrition and hydration whenever we need to change their diet or whenever they are having dysphagia, oral, pharyngeal, or even just behavioral. So they are going to know a lot more about what intake they might need to supplement for patients that aren't getting the intake that they need. They're going to know a lot more about what food groups and what calories these people are going to need. And that's especially important, I think, in the pediatric population because they're still growing and developing. So if they're not getting the nutrients that they need, they're not going to grow like they should. And so they play a huge role in making sure that the patients we see are getting the right calories. And that's not something that we would necessarily know going into it. So that's something that is really important for that collaboration. And then in addition to that, they may also develop some anxiety and fear of eating and swallowing, especially if they're having dysphagia, if they're coughing, if they're aspirating. And I even have a patient right now that I'm seeing outpatient at a pediatric clinic that has a huge behavioral feeding problem because she has a lot of really severe allergies. And so we've had to work really hard on doing therapy with her and getting her comfortable with different foods and kind of collaborating with her other professionals and dietitians and things that know what foods she's allowed to eat because she's had such severe reactions. So even though acute care is kind of where we think of it the most, it's really crazy how in a lot of different settings we see that too. So what can we do to help each other? So the SLP and the dietitian could really come together to make that treatment plan to create a plan for what consistencies they might be needing, thickness levels, and appropriate foods and drinks that are going to maximize their intake. So especially when we're talking about thickening, that is also, which they'll probably talk about later with nursing, when we're thickening somebody's liquids and things like that, they're not going to take as much. And so we have to consider how we can troubleshoot that to make sure they're staying hydrated and getting the nutrients and everything. 
So um, there's also some research links from the Heist, Goldberg, and Zarnowski <laughs> article that was in the Journal of the American Dietetic Association. And they discussed how malnutrition and dehydration with cognitive decline was very linked. And so we're talking about getting into other aspects of our field too, the, with their speech and their language, in addition to their swallowing, whenever they're not getting the nutrition that they need and whenever they're getting dehydrated. So that also just kind of solidifies that SLPs and dietitians really need to have a really open dialogue whenever we're talking about our patients. It also talked about how diet modifications are going to be important to talk about because they might have some really creative ideas for how we can keep them on a consistency that's safe, but still get the nutrients that they need. And so really kind of making that diet modification plan together is going to be super beneficial for our patients. So we might talk about what recommendations would make their diet safe. And then the dietitian can come in and say, well, you know, here are some things that we can make into that consistency, or here's a list of foods that we can use that are going to be safe for them to swallow that are going to have the biggest bang for your buck nutritionally. So they know a lot more about the food science and how to prepare foods and how the nutrition and hydration really breaks down. So that's going to be a big help to us whenever we're trying to create a plan, especially because if we're modifying somebody's diet, we want to give them as many resources as we can for what they can eat and what they can drink and different ways to make it more livable for them. Also just providing updates on patient status. So with different foods and consistencies, you might see patients who fatigue quicker with a certain consistency or who have a negative reaction with this kind of consistency. And so they can really help troubleshoot ways to change that up a little bit and use different things that can really provide the nutrition, but still minimize the fatigue and the negative reactions. And then each professional also has the opportunity to contribute their knowledge and expand on what the other person knows and kind of really play off of each other whenever they're creating that treatment plan and when they're using it with their patients and giving that patient education with families too. So what did our dietitians say they needed from SLPs? They said that they really wanted assistance with understanding the basics of dysphagia and the warning signs that somebody is having feeding and swallowing difficulties so they can make the right referrals. So a lot of times the dietitian's going to see a patient in the acute care setting before we are because they're going to do that nutritional assessment probably pretty soon after they are admitted. Thank you. (laughs) And so if they notice whenever they're doing the assessment that the person's drooling at the front of their mouth or, you know, is having difficulty with something else, then that might click in their head and say, hey, you know, I think that it might be appropriate for them to have an SLP come and do a bedside swallow on them or do a feed. You know, if they have a more basic understanding of what that might look like in the room, then they would also be more comfortable making that referral. And so then we go to what dietitians wanted SLPs to know. And so they said that they really wanted SLPs to be able to recognize when a patient's food inventory or daily intake doesn't meet the minimal requirements for what is necessary for them to get their nutrition and their hydration and be able to refer to a dietitian that they trusted. Really, just like I said, creating a very open dialogue, a very open communication system between SLPs and dietitians is really going to better serve our patients with dysphagia. And I really found it interesting is that the article that I was referring to earlier also mentioned another article within it that I believe it was like a questionnaire that they gave to patients in a hospital setting. And patients actually rated that they had higher satisfaction with their stay whenever they had better collaboration between the dietitian and the SLP 
So not only did it increase their nutritional status, but it also increased their satisfaction with the care that they receive. And that's huge. So it's fantastic. So tell me a little bit, Emily, about your just experience. So did you and the dietitian consult like every day or like once a week or what did paint that picture for me of, of your guys' relationship? Okay, so Cavill Huntington Hospital has this beautiful interprofessional kind of foundation in which during weekdays, so Monday through Friday, there's a daily floor meeting at a set time that the charge nurses, OTPT, ST, dietitian, social worker, as long as they're available, will come to the floor and meet for 30 minutes and go over every single patient that's on that floor. And so that provided an awesome opportunity for every time we would go and talk about a patient, we could say, oh, we just did a bedside swallow on Mr. Smith and he needs to be on this consistency or he needs this test. And then we could turn to her and say, you know, what did you find? Do you have any information on him? And so it really opened the floor for us to really have a very easy way to communicate about the patients that we were seeing together. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Cause I know, you know, a lot of facilities will, you know, most every place has, has rounds like that, but a lot of times it's just one representative from all of therapy, you know, and as much as we can tell, you know, our DOR or somebody, you know, Hey, tell them about this patient. Sometimes just having our actual SLP input can help a lot. Right. And so there were also times that we, of course, if we couldn't make it to the meeting or, you know, we would see her in the hallway or kind of seek her out a little bit or call her and say, hey, you know, we need some help with this patient or we're not really sure what to do with him because he hasn't eaten in three days and we know he needs to and he's on this consistency and we know he's not safe. So the collaboration was very open and it was really awesome to see how the interprofessional world that we learned about and that we're continuing to learn about here at school was actually happening in the hospital and that the collaboration was already started. So the SLP that was my supervisor and the dietitian had a really great relationship and they talked pretty frequently about patients that we were seeing. And so that collaboration was really awesome to see. That was kind of my experience. And the takeaways is nutrition and hydration equals health equals cognition equals communication. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the main takeaway. I could probably have summed up my whole talk in just that small sentence. (laughs) And then overlap in diet recommendations. So like Lexi mentioned with coming from a respiratory therapist whose focus is on breathing to the SLP who has a different focus, kind of coming at two angles. This is the same way. The dietitian's looking at the nutrition and then we're kind of looking at safety and just getting them to eat anything if it's more behavioral. So anytime that we can have two heads in it instead of one is going to be beneficial for our patients and just open communication, of course. All right. I love it. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.